I'd love to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. The passage will be up here on the screen as well, but if you have a, a Bible, pull it out, or there's some blue Bibles in some of the baskets and some of the seats in front of you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's pray together. God of extravagant grace, we confess that we are not always very gracious and that we do judge in the kind of way that Jesus is talking about. And so we ask, Father, for humility Please, desperately, Lord, may we not apply this passage just to the people sitting next to us, but willingly ask for correction where we need it, that we might experience change for the good, not only of ourselves and our spiritual estate, but for the good of our body. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It's hard to imagine a more popular biblical passage today than the passage we just read. And you already know why this is, right? We use this passage to evangelize values like tolerance and affirmation, so much so that there are folks who couch this passage as the headline of Jesus' teaching ministry. And of course, this passage can be such a powerful, guilt-trippy resource for getting people off of our backs. Jesus says, to zip it, thank you very much, Matthew chapter 7. And yet, even though we celebrate this idea of non-judgmentalism, it's hard to imagine living in a more judgmental age. So on one hand, we say things like, don't judge me, you know, you know my name but not my story, something like that, you know. Or don't judge me for doing things that don't affect you. Make your own business your own business. You know, Planet Fitness has a judgment-free zone. But on the other hand, we make strong, uncharitable judgments with limited information. Hello, social media. We assign nefarious motives to things our opponents say or do without recourse for them to clarify or explain. We cancel people without recourse for restoration or forgiveness. We judge people for going to Planet Fitness in the first place. So what in the world is going on? This is a massive 
social contradiction in a moment that seems to be full of contradictions. Some of you had oat milk this morning with your cereal, and the thing about it is that your milk doesn't actually contain any milk. The free-range chickens responsible for your eggs would probably argue that they are not, in fact, free on the range. That's a long discussion, but it is what it is. Some of you used plastic silverware to eat your cereal and your eggs this morning. Maybe some of you got up early and you went to Planet Fitness, even though it's not a planet at all. All kinds of contradictions. This judgment thing is just one of them. But there's extra gravity here since we pulled Jesus' teaching right into the middle of it. Well, I have an idea. Let's revisit what Jesus is saying to his disciples at the beginning of chapter 7, being appropriately suspicious that the way we tend to hear what he's saying might actually be captive to our contemporary sensibilities as well as a universal human impulse to tell our critics to take a hike. So two exhortations this morning. Number one, beware judgment that destroys. And then number two, let's pursue a different kind of judgment, you might say, that restores. So let's beware judgment that destroys. And then secondly, let's pursue another kind of judgment that actually heals and restores. Look with me again at the first two verses of chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. What is this judgment that Jesus strongly warns? I mean, couldn't be more strong. That Jesus strongly warns against pronouncing. So strongly that the consequence involves, apparently, divine judgment against the one who pronounced the judgment against someone else. Here's what Jesus can't be saying, at least categorically. Here's what he cannot be saying. Number one, Jesus cannot be telling his disciples to avoid speaking truth to people, including uncomfortable spiritual truth. Recall that Jesus himself, from the onset of his public ministry, went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and the message was repent, you see that? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 17. In other words, turn away from your alternative self-concerned kingdoms and instead follow the true king. And then later in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, Jesus commissions his own disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim the same message of repentance. Eventually, the Apostle Paul, when he was ministering in Athens, he saw that the city was full of idols, and it it provoked him spiritually. So in the midst of the Areopagus, he plainly told the Athenians, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's mighty honest, isn't it? Number two, Jesus cannot be telling his disciples to coddle sin. 
Yes, Jesus intentionally and scandalously spent time with sinners, but the encounters were spiritually catalytic, and the sinners went away changed. The sinners didn't change Jesus. You know, shoot, I've been, I've been wrong this whole time about money and, and sex. I need to be more accommodating. Jesus changed them. Zacchaeus is a very striking example of this dynamic. Jesus visited Zacchaeus' house, a notorious, notorious tax collector who did all kinds of unscrupulous financial things. In fact, people grumbled, religious leaders grumbled when they saw that he was going to Zacchaeus' house because here Jesus is with us, this filthy sinner. And then what? Zacchaeus was so affected by this encounter that he told Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Number three. So what is Jesus not saying? He can't be telling his disciples not to speak truth. He cannot be telling his disciples to coddle sin. But then number three, Jesus can't be saying nothing, right? We need to make sure that we don't qualify his warning into oblivion here. So once again, what is this pronouncing judgment that Jesus warns his disciples about? Jesus is warning his disciples, and this is so important, against unfair judgments. He's warning them against specifically unfair judgments, which comes through a bit in verse 2 with reference to measuring. You can also see this in verse 5. We'll come back to this later. Jesus still affirms the need for his disciples to take the speck out of their brother's eye. That's still a thing. It's just that they shouldn't do that without dealing with their own logs first. Otherwise, they will judge or measure judgment very, very unfairly. Don't judge does not mean don't evaluate or be discerning or speak truth. It means don't do any of that unfairly or unjustly, with bad measures, with bad assessments. The very worst kind of unfair or unjust judgment involves calling out sin in a way that others people or condemns them. The religious leaders had a bunch of trouble with this. Case in point, the woes that Jesus assigns to them in Matthew chapter 23. This is Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. They, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Here's Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Were these leaders speaking truth? Kind of. But they were also extrapolating a bit. They were adding some of their own standards to the standards. They were laying heavy burdens because of their zeal in their minds to really protect the standards, and then apply the standards to new situations, etc., etc. And the way that they were handling the truth 
was effectively shutting the kingdom door on people's faces, which made whatever truth they were teaching a half-truth at best. The word of God should set people free, John 8, 32. But some of these leaders were handling the law in a way that was burdening the people under their care and keeping them out of God's kingdom. This isn't a perfect illustration. Let me warn you, it's not perfect. But in our community, it makes sense to compare what these leaders were doing to the kind of thing you see at Turlington Plaza and at other free speech zones around UF's campus. The plaza attracts sign holders, for lack of a better phrase, or street preachers who visually display, you know, on the signs, or verbally announce lists of sins that will supposedly send those people passing by to hell. Are they speaking truth? Perhaps to some degree. And a few of these folks, I want to be charitable here, a few of these folks are more legitimate and helpful than others. But there is often a lot of extrapolation. You know, the sins list will be like drunkenness, that will be on there. Then you go down the list and it's like hot yoga. <laughs> and you know, the, the angry, kind of sardonic tones give the impression that there's not a lot of hope. You might hear these, these vague references to repentance or maybe to John 3.16, but the atmosphere suggests that folks walking by without experiencing on-the-spot revival might be beyond forgiveness anyway. The signs and the, the preaching really start to feel like condemnation. Or here's another, I mean, absolutely excruciating example of this. I know, I know a few women, actually, who've been ostracized from their community, either their friend group or, or maybe their entire church, after getting pregnant out of wedlock. In their greatest season of need, they were effectively condemned and pushed away. When we call out sin in a way that others people or, or condemns them, we are treating other people as if they are beyond spiritual repair, which means, spiritually speaking, we are treating them like second-class citizens. We are somehow, you know, in the company of the redeemable. Usually there are meritorious undertones involved here. You know, sure, uh, we're saved by grace, but maybe we're more savable than some of these other people. And this other person or this other group of people might be beyond redemption. Why is this unfair judgment? of the worst kind, because it's wrong. God is able to save anyone. That's part of the beauty of the gospel. And you know, we make bad reads all of the time. Before you drop someone into this sort of second-class citizenry, consider the apostle Paul's testimony, the guy that was preaching to the Athenians. God turned a murderer into the greatest missionary of all time. And sometimes genuine followers of Jesus just really blow it. But thankfully, their spiritual standing depends on the strength of their Savior, not on the strength of their faith. And speaking of 
ostracizing people. God actually intends to use his people to minister to wayward people and hopefully restore them. That's what he wants to do. But there's another kind of unfair judgment that's even more common. Honestly, I think this affects everybody to some degree. And it's mainly what Jesus has in view here in Matthew chapter 7. I'm talking about judgment in which we are harsher with other people than we are with ourselves. I'm talking about judgment in which we are less charitable with other people than we are with ourselves. I'm talking about judgment in which we judge others in a manner that we would never want other people to judge us. Maybe we jump to conclusions based on incomplete information or hearsay, never bothering to go to our brother or sister in Christ to gain clarity, never taking time to listen carefully and discern. Maybe we just pounce on something someone said on social media that wasn't all that thoughtful or accurate, by eviscerating them with all kinds of hot takes and then humiliating them with mocking humor. Maybe we gossip, which is basically a fancy tea-sipping-with-your-finger-out way of making really unfair judgments based on incomplete information, missing context, etc. And it's always intended to destroy and restore, not restore. Have you ever thought about gossip this way, that gossip is a massive violation of Matthew chapter 7? If you want to tear apart a spiritual community, judging unfairly is a really expedient way to take care of business. Relationally speaking, it's the ultimate poison pill. Which explains what we've been seeing the past three or so years here in America, doesn't it? I mean, right now, the American motto is something like, judge harshly. And then very often we, we celebrate those judgments with our tribes and we treat each other heroically for speaking up, etc. You know, slip up at all and there's no soup for you. Seinfeld reference, for those of you who are fans of that show. And so many professing Christ followers have been drinking this Kool-Aid and the name, very often the name of standing for truth, as if standing for truth gives you all the space you want to act like a jerk. Thus, the disintegration that we've been seeing in churches and denominations, thus the disintegration we've been seeing in families and in friend groups, even when everybody involved professes to know Christ. Harsh, unfair judgments destroy. They other people. They tear apart spiritual communities. And oh, by the way, in case you're not convinced yet of how awful this is, when real hurts have been done, such as on account of harsh judgments, that same spirit of harshness makes reconciliation nearly impossible. Spiritual communities cannot flourish when their members are judging unfairly and harshly 
Thus, Jesus' warnings at the beginning of Matthew 7, as he finishes his Sermon on the Mount, by actually, as you'll see the next few weeks, zooming in on the horizontal relational life of his followers. And when we're harsh, when we judge unfairly, church, we are in grave spiritual trouble. We're living totally out of step with the grace we profess to believe in. It's hard to know exactly what Jesus means when he says, you know, for the judgment, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's hard to know exactly what Jesus has in mind here. But he means something. And I sure do not want to find out the extent of it. And back to the grace part, a heart not showing grace in charitability is often a heart that hasn't experienced grace, which is a spiritually dangerous obstinance that may well expose us to divine judgment. What if you're not interested in destruction, though? What if you're looking for a better way? You know, these days it, it, it honestly feels like some honestly are here for the damage, you know? And then they'll sort of slink by it with this this curious fascination, like, like gawkers on an interstate when they see a traffic accident. You know, maybe they write these sort of discernment blogs that are always looking to critique various things. Maybe they, they pick a bunch of fights on Twitter. But what if we're looking for things like healing and reconciliation and peace? That brings us to our second exhortation. Pursue judgment that restores. Beware judgment that destroys, but there is a kind of judgment that restores. And I am retaining this judgment language intentionally because we do find some judgment, you might say, in verses 3 through 5, albeit a different kind of judgment. Look with me at these two verses, these three verses. Why do you seek, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Two reasons, at least, to take the log out. Number one, take the log out to judge clearly. Church, if we are are awash in our own sin, we are spiritually and emotionally, and I would even add intellectually compromised, and therefore in no place to clearly evaluate other people. Sin totally distorts our understanding of morality, making it likely that we'll actually call evil good and good evil. So, for example, if you're a lawyer and you found out that the judge robbed a bank a couple of days before the trial, you would definitely ask for a new trial with a new judge. You know, and someone says, don't don't worry about the judge is out on bail. You know, he's able to move forward with the proceedings. Doesn't matter what he's physically able to do. There's no way we can trust him to judge clearly. So we take the log out to judge clearly, and then number two, we take the log out to judge charitably. Where do charitability and grace come from? 
when we make judgment. They come from receiving that grace in abundance from the God of the universe. They come from believing that once we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. They come from believing that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's why harsh Christian is an oxymoron. Worst case scenario, the harshness indicates that a Christian is a Christian in name only. Best case scenario, if we can even call it that, it indicates that a genuine Christian is totally out of the habit of regular confession of sin and repentance. And if you're going to take one thing with you this morning, maybe take this. Have you ever considered that one of the most important reasons for daily and desperate confession of sin is for the sake of the body, for the sake of your spiritual community? It's not just about you. It's not just about assuaging your sense of spiritual guilt. It's actually about caring for others in the body of Christ by caring for your own soul that you might contribute to a culture of grace and charitableness. Fail to practice ongoing confession and repentance, and you won't just miss out on love and forgiveness from Jesus, you will be insufferably proud, and you will, you know, care for other people like a toddler holding fine china. But when we do practice ongoing confession of sin and repentance, What should be, by the way, a daily habit even after salvation that has to do with communing with God and rightly beholding His holiness and our dependency on Him. When we do practice ongoing confession repentance, when we do practice ongoing log removal, then we'll have gospel-shaped hearts. Yes, we will speak truth to one another, but we'll do so with tenderness, We'll do so with with zeal to revive and to restore. We'll take Jesus seriously when he tells us later in Matthew chapter 18 that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. We'll take that seriously, but then we will approach that brother or that sister with humility, praising God that he showed us so much grace despite our faults, faults so severe that they rendered us spiritually dead and in need of God's mercy. We did this last week, but I'm going to do it again. Shout out again to Lent. Lent is not just this boutique spring practice intended to help us clear away the dross, like the spiritual version of a, a spring house clean. It's also for the body. It's also for everybody that's sitting around you. We go without 
during Lent to kill off competitors to our affections for God that we might experience spiritual rejuvenation and corporately speaking, not be huge jerks. It's baseball season right now, sort of. It's, it's spring training, college season has started, MLB about to start spring training, you get the point. Baseball season is here, which means it's also heckling season because there's a lot of heckling that happens in baseball. Some of it totally over the top, some of it very inappropriate. You've heard some of this if you've gone to a UF baseball game. And you know, I gotta tell you, a lot of it comes from these guys who sit there in the stands every day eating, you know, the jumbo popcorn, and their primary exercise is the walk from their car into the stadium. And yet, they are criticizing the athleticism of the folks on the field. They might have some fair points, but if they put themselves through the paces that these athletes put themselves through, every day, and maybe even consider stepping up to the plate themselves. They'd see things a bit differently, and at least they would speak with more softness. You know, excuse me, but if you would please open your eyes next time when you swing, we'd all appreciate it. You know, we respect you being up there. Your jerseys, they look immaculate. You made a lovely defensive play last inning, but if you would open the eyes, that would be great. Lint can be like this too. Spring training for people who've gotten spiritually out of shape, not just for the sake of their own health, but for the sake of everybody else. Beyond Lynn, though, here's a question. How are your rhythms of confession and repentance? If they look like nothing, the Psalms can be a really helpful daily guide. Start with something like, like Psalm 51. Start praying regularly through Psalm 51. There are prayer liturgies available in print and online as well. You know, like I think about the Book of Common Prayer, Every Moment Holy. There's a lot of others. And remember, confession and repentance should happen corporately as well. Certainly on Sunday mornings during our services. We just did that a few moments ago but also beyond that with friends and your small group. You get the point. In goodness, try making harsh judgments against someone you just confessed your own sin to last week. In a very good way. It's much harder. <laughs> Beginning of our time this morning, I mentioned that we're living in a major social contradiction concerning judgment. One of the major reasons for this contradiction is our tendency to take teaching from Jesus intended to help a community flourish, to bless us horizontally, and then commandeer it for self-serving purposes. We'll employ it, you know, to get people off of our backs, even well-meaning people will employ it to promote tolerance under the guise of altruism, when in truth we're putting up some scaffolding that really suits our desires to live however we want, to be our own authorities, which means that we'll be awfully judgmental when someone challenges the nature of that scaffolding and gets in the way of our self-determined freedoms. But this teaching church is not just for you. 
It's for the benefit of your community. It's for the benefit of the body. It's not for self-concerned individuals, which means that we humble ourselves before the Lord for the sake of acting charitably. And then we speak truth. We humble ourselves before the Lord for the sake of speaking charitably. And then we do speak truth. And I'll end with this. And this should apply to all of us. Oh my goodness. If you see my car veering off of the road, please honk your horn. Do something. I've heard it said sort of sharply before, but someone has said something like this, like, how much do you have to hate me to say nothing and watch me drive right off the road? I've used this example before, but I'll use it again. A lot of you are new anyway, and for all, your, all you know, this is the first time I've said this. I've never said this before, actually. <laughs> how about that? When I was in grad school, first year of grad school, one of my closest friends spoke truth to me, church took me for a two-hour walk on a very cold Chicago day to tell me that I was being subtly critical all the time, and he could see it, and it needed to stop. It was unbecoming of someone who was a genuine follower of Jesus. We walked around the block for two hours to talk about that. He said, I'm telling you this because I'm your friend. I see that you're veering off the road in this area. And I, went, I wanted to stop. <laughs> for the sake of your own soul and for the sake of people that live in community with you and maybe that one day, you know, we were in seminary, you'll, you'll pastor. He did it with so much gentleness. I mean, and also what cost to him, what risk he was taking, but also what benefit it's had, not only relationally for the two of us, but also for me personally. It's one of the most instrumental moments of my entire life was this honesty, was this truth speaking. We have to be discerning, verse 6 get in, gets into this, we'll pick this up again next week, you have to be a little bit discerning as far as who we speak truth to. There is a class of people, although it's very difficult to discern the nature of Jesus' language, it, but there are some people that at the end of the day, they're not willing to hear it, you know, the dogs and the pigs that Jesus refers to here that kind of counterbalances what he's saying. But one of the normal rhythms of flourishing church community is speaking truth to people and doing so as we humble ourselves before the Lord. Amen.